Since truth is the only meaningful foundation upon which we can make wise decisions, how can one then establish what is really true? Increasingly, more people are finding that making wise decisions is becoming more and more difficult because of the ultra-interconnected world in which we lived. Constantly forced into our consciousness is an incessant barrage of counsel, advice, and promotions. It's done by a bewildering array of media, internet, and other means. On a given subject, we can receive multiple strongly delivered, carefully crafted messages with solutions. But often, two of these solutions can be diametrically opposed. No wonder some are confused and are not sure how to make the right decisions. To further complicate matters, others try to persuade us that our decisions must be socially acceptable and politically correct. Some pondering of that approach will reveal how wrong it is since social and political structures differ widely over the world and can dramatically change with time. The folly of using that message of making choices is apparent. There are two ways to find truth, both useful, provided we follow the laws upon which they are predicated. The first is the scientific method. It can require analysis of data to confirm a theory or alternatively establish a valid principle through experimentation. The scientific method is a valuable way of seeking truth. However, it has two limitations. First, we never can be sure we've identified absolute truth, though we often draw nearer and nearer to it. Second, sometimes, no matter how earnestly we apply the method, we can get the wrong answer. The best way of finding truth is simply go to the origin of all truth and ask, or respond to inspiration. For success, two ingredients are essential. First, unwavering faith in the source of all truth. Second, a willingness to keep God's commandments, to keep open spiritual communication with Him. Elder Robert D. Hales has just spoken to us about that personal revelation and how to obtain it. What have we learned from the scientific approach to discovering truth? An example will illustrate, try as I might, I am not able, even in the smallest degree, to comprehend the extent, depth, and stunning grandeur of what our Holy Father Elohim has permitted to be revealed by the scientific method. If we were capable of moving outward into space, we would first see our Earth as the astronauts. Farther out, we would have grandstand view of the sun and its orbiting planets. They would appear as a small circle of objects within an enormous panorama of glittering stars. Were we to continue the outward journey, we'd have a celestial view of our Milky Way spiral with over 100 billion stars rotating in a circular path 
their orbits controlled by gravity around a concentrated central region. Beyond that, we could look towards a group of galaxies called the Virgo Cluster that some feel includes our Milky Way, estimated to be about 50 million light years away. Beyond that, we'd encounter galaxies 10 billion light years away that the Hubble telescope has photographed. The dizzying enormity of that distance is suggested by noting that light travels 700 million miles an hour. Even from this extraordinary perspective, there would not be the slightest evidence of approaching any limit to God the Father's creations. As awe-inspiring as this incredible view of the heavens would present, there is another considerably consideration equal, capable of confirming the unfathomable capacities of our Father in heaven. Were we to move in the opposite direction, to explore the structure of matter, we could get a close-up view of the double helix molecule of DNA. That is the extraordinarily self-duplicating molecular structure that controls the makeup of our physical body. Further exploration would bring us to the level of an atom with its protons, neutrons, and electrons that we've heard about. Were we able to penetrate further into the mysteries of the most fundamental makeup of creation? We come to the limit of our current understanding. In the last 70 years, much has been learned about the structure of matter. A standard model for fundamental particles and interactions has been developed. It's based on experimentation that has established the existence of fundamental particles designated as quarks, and others are called leptons. This model explains the pattern of nuclear binding and the decay of matter, but it does not yet provide a successful explanation for the forces of gravity. Also, some feel that even more powerful tools than those used to acquire a current understanding of matter might reveal additional fundamental particles. So there's yet more of Father in Heaven's creations to be understood by the scientific method. We can see the scientific method has brought about an extraordinary expansion of our understanding as the Lord has inspired gifted men who may not understand who created these things, nor for what purpose. Many of these may not even recognize such inspiration and give credit to God for the origin of their contributions. I was comforted recently as Elder Henry B. Eyring shared an experience that his gifted father had in a meeting with other outstanding scientists. He asked them if their research indicated the existence of a superior organizing intelligence. They confirmed, each one, their conviction that such an intelligence exists. Limited as it is, our understanding of Father's creations 
indicates that mostly vacant space, even those things we consider as solid, tangible, firm, when viewed at enormous magnification in the heavens or minute matter, are mostly vacant space that God our Father perfectly controls and uses for His exalted purposes. What have we learned about truth through revelation? Centuries ago, God the Father permitted some of His prophets to view far more of His vast creations perfectly through the eye of the Holy Spirit. He also explained why he had created them. For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Enoch was one of those prophets. He observed the God of heaven weep as he saw how the power and influence of Satan had turned many on earth to evil. Enoch declared, How is it that thou canst weep, seeing that thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? And were it possible that men could number the millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, and thy curtains are stretched out still, and yet thou art just. Thou art merciful and kind forever, and not but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne, and mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. How is it that thou canst weep? The Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. And I gave them their knowledge, and I gave unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren I have given a commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. Well, did God the Father say to Moses, Worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. There are many worlds, and innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. The knowledge of this truth Truth is of little value unless we apply it in making correct decisions. Consider for a moment a a man, heavily overweight, approaching a bakery display. In his mind are these thoughts. The doctor told you not to eat any more of that. It's not good for you. It gives you momentary gratification of appetite. You'll feel uncomfortable all the rest of the day after it. You've decided not to have any more. Then he hears himself say, I'll have two of those almond twists and a couple of donuts. (laughs) One more time won't hurt. 
I'll do it just once more, and this will be the last time. The process of identifying truth sometimes necessitates enormous effort, coupled with profound faith in our Father and His glorified Son. God intended that it be so, to forge your worthy character. Worthy character will strengthen your capacity to respond obediently to the direction of the Spirit as you make vital decisions. Righteous character is what you're becoming. It's more important than what you own, what you've learned, or what goals you've accomplished. It allows you to be trusted. Righteous character provides the foundation and spiritual strength. It enables you in times of trial and testing to make difficult, extremely important decisions correctly, even when they seem overpowering. I testify that neither Satan nor any other power can weaken or destroy your growing character. Only you can do that through disobedience. Understand and apply this vital principle to your life. Your exercise of faith builds character. Fortified character expands your capacity to exercise greater faith. Thus, your confidence in making correct decisions is enhanced. And the strengthening cycle continues. The more your character is fortified, the more enabled you are to exercise the power of faith for yet stronger character. With the enormity of what we can in just the smallest way begin to understand, and certainly in no way fully comprehend, how grateful we must be that this God of unfathomable capacities is our Father. He's a loving, understanding, compassionate, patient Father. He has created us us as His children. He treats us as beloved son or daughter. He makes us feel loved, appreciated, valuable, and dear to Him. He's given us His plan of mercy and equipped us when obedient to make correct decisions. He has provided through His Holy Son a means for us to live, to grow, to develop, and to place ourselves squarely on the path to be eternally under His guidance and influence. I love our Father in Heaven beyond my capacity to express. In all humility, I solemnly bear witness that this creative master of unparalleled capacities is our compassionate Holy Father. His beloved Son laid His life down in absolute obedience to His Father to break the bonds of death and to become our Master, our Redeemer, our Savior. While I do not fully comprehend all their capacities, I understand something of their power to 
express intensely their love humbly. I bear solemn witness that they live and love us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Oh, I love this song. I have heard that no one has ever died giving a talk in a general conference. If that is the case today, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> While serving in the required military service in Argentina, I read a book whose author I do not remember wrote. I choose not to be an ordinary man. It is my right to be someone out of the ordinary if I am able. To be someone out of the ordinary means to be successful, unique, and outstanding. That phrase has remained written in my mind and heart. My feelings were and are that we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, have chosen not to be ordinary men and women. The last words, if I am able, made me think that it is not enough to go through the motion of being baptized and confirmed, but rather we have to fulfill and honor that commitment that we made with the Lord on that memorable day. Lehi taught his son Jacob, saying, Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given then which are expedient unto man, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Undoubtedly, freedom and eternal life are what we seek. We tremble at the very thought of dying and being captives of the devil. devil. Nephi taught us clearly what we ought to do. He said, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. I believe that the first thing we have to keep in mind doing all we can is to repent of our sins. We will never be able to reach our divine potential if we remain in our sins. I have fond memories of the day of my baptism when I was a year old. It was performed in the Liniers branch, the first chapel of the church built in South America. After my baptism, as I was returning home, along with my family, my oldest brother started wrestling with me, as he often did. I exclaimed, do not touch me. I cannot sin. <laughs> as the day passed, I realized that it was not possible to remain sinless for the rest of my life. It is difficult to bear the sufferings that are inflicted upon us, but the real torment in life is to suffer the consequences of our own shortcomings and sins which we inflicted upon ourselves. There is only one way to rid ourselves of this suffering. It is by means of sincere repentance. I learned that if I could present unto the Lord a broken heart, and I contract the spirit, feeling a godly sorrow for my sins, humbling myself, being repentant of my faults, that he, through his miraculous atoning sacrifice, could erase those sins and remember them no more. 
The Argentine poet Jose Hernandez, in his famous book, Martin Fierro, wrote, Man loses many things that later he may find. However, I should teach you, and it is good you remember, if shame is lost, it will be never recovered. If we don't experience the godly sorrow that results from our sins or unrighteous actions, it will be impossible for us to remain on the way of outstanding people. Another important principle to remember in doing all we can do is to look for and develop the opportunities that life within the gospel constantly offers us and recognize that the Lord has given us all that we have. He is responsible for all that is good in our lives. Another thing that must be our permanent responsibility is to do all we can do to share the gospel of happiness with all mankind. Some time ago, I received a letter from Brother Rafael Perez Cisneros of Galicia, Spain, telling me about his conversion. Part of his letter said the following, I had no concept of the purpose of life or what the family really is. When I finally allowed the missionaries to come into my home, I told them, Give me your message, but I warn you that nothing is going to make me change religions. On this first occasion, my children and my wife were listening attentively. I felt separated from the group. I felt afraid, and without thinking, I went to my bedroom. I closed the door and began to pray from the depths of my soul, like I had never prayed before. Father, if it, it is true that these young men are your disciples, and can come to, to help us. Please, make it known to me. It was in that very moment that I began to cry like a smiled child. My tears were abundant, and I felt happiness like I had never before experienced. I was absorbed in a sphere full of joys and happiness that penetrated my soul. I understood that God was answering my prayer. All of my family were baptized, and we had the blessing of being sealed in the Swiss temple, making me the happiest man in the world. I think that this story should motivate us to do all we can do to share the blessing of joy that comes from living the gospel of happiness. The final concept I want to share is that we should do all we can do until the end of our mortal probation. Without question, we have living examples like President Gordon B. Hinckley and many other men and women who continue to faithfully serve at ages that others may consider inconvenient. When I served as president of the Spain Bilbao Mission, I was impressed with the quality of members and missionaries that I met who moved the world forward with great ability and love as many faithful members of the Church in other parts of the world. To all of them, I express my sincere respect and admiration. The Lord has said that He is delighted to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth and to the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. May we always have in our minds and hearts the words of Nephi. Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. My soul will rejoice in thee, my God, 
and the rock of my salvation. It is my humble prayer that the Lord may bless us to do all we can do in this out-of-the-ordinary path that we have chosen, which I testify to be true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, one of the things which I am most grateful to my Heavenly Father for is the opportunity I had to work for 15 years as recorded in the Mexico City Temple. In this sacred place, as in all temples, ordinances are performed for the living and the dead by the power of the priesthood. In 1932, the prophet Joseph Smith received the revelations about the priesthood, and this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinance thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. I have had wonderful experiences within the walls of the temple that verify this. In 1993, after serving as president of the Mexico Tuxtla Gutierrez Mission, we traveled as a family to see my parents who lived in northern Mexico. During the trip, we talked about the joy of serving the Lord and seeing the change in people who had accepted the gospel during the three years we were in the mission. We were commenting about those people who were baptized, received the priesthood, and the ones we knew had entered the temple and were sealed as families for eternity. My youngest son asked a question that made me reflect. Dad, are you sealed to your parents? I told him that because my father had been less active for many years, he and my mother were not sealed in the temple. To help him become active, I thought up a plan. It involved my children, and I explained to them how we would do it. Every Sunday, my father would get up early to take my mother and sister to church, only to return home, wait for the services to end, then go back to pick them up. So I assigned my children to go with him and say, Grandpa, would you do us a favor? I knew his answer would be, whatever you want, my children. Then they would ask him, if he would go with them to church and stay with them so he could listen to the, their testimonies. It was the first Sunday of the month. I also knew my father would give any excuse not to go, so I planned to enter the room to help my children convince him. The time soon came for executing the plan. My daughter Susanna approached my father and asked him about the favor. Sure enough, my father told her he would do anything he could for them. Then came the invitation to go to church, and just what we had predicted, he used this excuse. I can't because I haven't even showered. That's when my wife and I, who were hiding behind the door, shouted, We'll wait for you. When we realized he was not making a decision, my wife and I entered the room, and together with our children began to insist, Shower, shower. <laughs> then what we expected happened. My father came with us. He stayed for the services, listened to the testimonies of my children. His heart was softened, and from that Sunday on, he never missed church. Months later, at the age of 78, he and my mother were sealed, and we, his children, were sealed to them. I know that thanks to the power of godliness manifest in the ordinance of the temple, I can now be reunited with my parents for all eternity, even after death. 
Many times we don't comprehend the meaning of the ordinance of the temple in the fullness until after we have known affliction or passed through experiences that could have been extremely sad without the knowledge of the plan of salvation. When my wife and I had only been married a year and a half, she was ready to deliver our first baby. We had decided that she would have the baby in the Chihuahua colonies where she had been born. At that time, I was working in Mexico City, and we decided that she would be there a month ahead of the delivery date. I was planning to join her later. The delivery date arrived. I was at work when I received a call from my father-in-law. The news was good. Octaviano, your wife has given birth, and you now have a little daughter who is beautiful. So in my happiness, I began to announce this to my friends and partners at work, who in turn asked me for chocolates to celebrate the birth of my little one. The next day, I began to give out chocolates throughout the four floors of our office building. When I reached the second floor, I received another call from my father-in-law. This time, the news was different. Octaviano, your wife is fine, but your daughter has passed away. The funeral will be today, and you don't have time to come. What are you going to do? I asked to speak with Rosa, my wife, and then asked her if she was okay. She replied that she was fine, depending on how I was feeling. Then we talked about the plan of salvation, remembered this scripture. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. I asked her, do you believe that? And she said, yes, I do. Then I replied, we should be happy then. I love you, and if you are okay with that, I'll take my vacations in two weeks, spend some time with you, and return back together to Mexico. We knew that one day we would be reunited with our daughter because we were sealed by the power of the priesthood in the temple. We ended the telephone call and I resumed giving out the chocolates in my office building. Seeing me do this, one of my co-workers was surprised and asked me how I could do this after such terrible news. I answered, if you have three hours, I can explain to you why I'm not feeling too sad and about my knowledge of what happens after death. He didn't have three hours at that moment, but did later. We ended up talking for four hours. He accepted the gospel and together with his mother and brother was baptized into the church after receiving the discussions. I know that thanks to the power of godliness manifested in the ordinance of the temple, I will now be able to know my daughter. I will embrace her. I will be, I will be with, he, with her for eternity, just as we are now with our three surviving children. I rejoice in the words of Malachi. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This priesthood makes eternal families possible. It allows me, a son, to turn my heart to my father who passed away last year and to be calm in my hope through the Savior that I will see him again. This priesthood allows me, as a father, to turn my heart to our two children who die as infants and to be calm in my hope through the Savior 
that I will know them and they will know I was their earthly father as I look into their eyes and tell them I love them. It is this priesthood which has allowed me to see in the holiness of the temple how the power of godliness is manifested to all people who after exercising faith in Christ, repenting of their sins and searching fervently for happiness come to make sacred covenants with our Heavenly Father and receive his holy ordinances that bind on earth as well as bind in heaven. I love temple work. I know that God lives, that Jesus Christ is my Savior, and that President Gordon B. Hinckley is a true prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As a young man, I worked with my father and brothers raising cattle and horses on a ranch in southern Utah and northern Arizona. My father taught us that when we wanted to catch one of our horses to ride, all we had to do was to put a handful of grain into a bucket and shake it for several seconds. It didn't matter if the horses were in a corral or a large field, they would come on their run to eat the grain. We could then gently slip a bridle over their heads while they were eating. I was amazed that such a simple process seemed to always work so well. But on some occasions, when we didn't want to take the time to get the grain from the barn, we would put dirt in the bucket and shake it, attempting to trick the horses into thinking that we had grain for them to eat. When they discovered our deception, some of the horses stayed, but others would run away and be nearly impossible to catch. It often takes several days to regain their trust. We learned that taking the time to consistently feed our horses grain made them much easier to work with and provided them with increased nourishment and greater strength. Even though many years have passed since my days on the ranch, the experience I have just described has helped me as I considered the following question. What can we, as teachers and leaders in the Church, do to provide increased doctrinal and spiritual nourishment for those we serve? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has taught, Most people don't come to Church looking merely for a few new gospel facts or to see old friends, though all of that is important. They come looking and seeking for a spiritual experience. They want peace. They want their faith fortified and their hope renewed. They want, in short, to be nourished by the good word of God, to be strengthened by the powers of heaven. Those of us who are called upon to speak or teach or lead have an obligation to help provide that as best we possibly can. The Savior and His servants have not only taught us the importance of helping others be nourished by the good word of God, they have also provided inspired direction concerning our teaching and leading how it can best be accomplished. Section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants is one of many references that provide such valuable counsel. After acknowledging the concerns that existed in some of the early branches of the Church, the Savior instructed a group of leaders concerning the solution to the problems they were facing. His instructions began by asking a vital question. Wherefore, I, the Lord, ask you this question, Unto what were ye ordained? The Lord's familiar response follows in verse 14, To preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. The answers to the problems the saints were facing in 1831 are the same for the challenges we are facing today. We are to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. 
Section 50 includes several vital keys to providing nourishment for those we teach and those we lead. The first key is found in the Savior's admonition to preach my gospel. The scriptures clearly teach that the gospel we are to preach isn't the wisdom of the world, but the doctrine of Christ. While the gospel of Jesus Christ embraces all truths, not all truths are of equal value. The Savior clearly taught that His gospel, first and foremost, is His atoning sacrifice. His gospel is also an invitation to receive the blessings of the Atonement through faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, and enduring faithfully to the end. Just as I learned as a young man that grain was more appealing to our horses than a dirt-filled bucket, I also learned that grain was more nourishing than hay and hay was more nourishing than straw, and that it was possible to feed a horse without nourishing him. As teachers and leaders, it is vital that we nourish those we teach and those we lead by focusing on the fundamental doctrines, principles, and applications emphasized in the scriptures and the words of our Latter-day Prophets, instead of spending precious time on subjects and sources of lesser importance. As a teacher, I have learned that a class discussion focused on the Atonement of Jesus Christ is infinitely more important than discussing topics such as the precise location of the ancient city of Zarahemla in today's geography. As a leader, I have learned that leadership meetings are more meaningful if our highest priority is an integrated effort to build faith in Christ and strengthen families and not simply just a correlated calendar. The Lord's words in section 50 contain a warning that if we teach by some other way than the way the Lord has directed, it is not of God. The Lord has taught those of us who serve in the Church to teach none other things than that which the apostles and prophets have written and that which is taught them by the Comforter through the prayer of faith. Does this mean that following the Savior's admonition to preach my gospel requires that every class we teach or meeting we lead be limited to teaching faith and repentance? President Henry B. Eyring responded to a similar question by answering, Of course not. But it does mean that the teacher and those who participate must always desire to bring the Spirit of the Lord into the hearts of the members in the room to produce faith and a determination to repent and to be clean. The second key to ensuring those we teach and lead are nourished by the good word of God is also found in the Savior's direction to preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. Not only are the Savior's words directing us to follow the guidance of the Spirit as we prepare and as we teach, He is also teaching that it is the Spirit that is the most effective teacher in any given situation. President Joseph Fielding Smith taught, The Spirit of God, speaking to the Spirit of man, has power to impart truth with greater effect and understanding than the truth can be imparted by personal contact, even with heavenly beings. Several months ago, I attended a training meeting where a number of the general authorities had spoken. After commenting on the excellent instruction that had been given, Elder David A. Bednar asked the following question. What are we learning that has not been said? He then explained that in addition to receiving the counsel that had been given by those who had spoken or those who would yet speak, we should also carefully listen for and record the unspoken impressions given by the Holy Ghost. 
The following statement from our beloved prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, provides additional counsel concerning teaching by the Spirit. We must get our teachers to speak out of their hearts and not their books, to communicate their love for the Lord and this precious work, and somehow it will catch fire in the hearts of those they teach. The Lord's words in section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants also provide an inspired standard by which each of us can evaluate the effectiveness of our teaching, leading, and learning. In verse 22 we read, Wherefore he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. My beloved brothers and sisters, with all of my heart I pray that each of us will take great care to nourish those we teach and those we lead by fortifying them with the bread of life and the living water found within the restored gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.